Happy Sunday. Hello. My name is Alice. And today's scripture um, comes from 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 9 through 18. So if you can follow along in your own Bibles or up on the screen below. 1 Kings 19, chapter 9. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great, str great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshai, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu be put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel and all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. This is the reading of God's word. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to True North Church. For those that are new or visiting, my name is Jam, the lead pastor here. And uh, yeah, welcome on Super Bowl Sunday. Um, I'm not a big football fan, uh, and I have no skin in the game, and I'm but I'm really rooting for the Niners, but unfortunately, I think the Chiefs are going to win. Um, just, I'm just 28-17, that's the score, okay? Just letting you guys know. We'll see if I'm a true prophet of God or not, okay? That's the only reason why I said that. I just want to see, okay? Um, well, uh, the year was 1999, and my freshman year was coming to an end. And, um, you know, I've seen on, like, online and stuff where young people are calling the 1990s the late 1900s, and, um, and I don't know how I feel about that. But, uh, yeah, 1999, I graduated, or not graduated, I, I finished my freshman year in college, and like a lot of people, um, college was a very transformative uh, experience for me, and, and I can't really look back. I mean, I look back just with such fond memories, like college, those four years was probably the best, not the best time, but one of the best times, you know, like the greatest memories that I had, right? And if I had the ability to go back in time and relive that moment, uh, I would relive it the exact same way that it happened, you know? And, and, and not because everything happened correctly or not because I, I don't have any regrets, but I really feel that God used that opportunity to really form me and transform me in a way that I don't think anything else could have really done. 
Well, and uh, at the end of my freshman year, I had the opportunity to go on a mission trip. And this is my first overseas mission trip. Uh, a team of about 12 to 14 people. We went to the Philippines and we spent two weeks in Thailand, two weeks in the Philippines. And it was uh, my first time leaving the United States in 10 years. Uh, it was my first time uh, being able to do kind of a overseas mission trip. And it was one of the greatest experiences that I've ever had in my life. Uh, you know, those, those, that time in the Philippines, we were in Chiang Rai, and we ministered to the Aka people. So they're not ethnically Thai. They are, you know, ethnically, they're the Aka people, and they live kind of in tribal areas, and we stayed with them uh, day and night. And it was an uh, opportunity for me that, to really experience what it meant to live every waking moment in worship and service to God and, and service to others. And, you know, we had a team of about 12, 14 people, and we are doing ministry together. Like, you know, I was a 19-year-old kid. It was so fun. And all the experiences that I had was just amazing. It was the first time that I actually I had uh, passion fruit. I didn't even know that passion fruit was a real fruit, right? So they gave us passion fruit that they had grown. They chopped it off. And I was like, what is this snotty-looking thing in there? And like, you got to eat that. And it was so sour, but it was so delicious. I ate the most passion fruit of my life. I had the best pineapples I've ever had in my life. Like, if you guys have had good, you guys haven't had good pineapples until you eat pineapples in Thailand. They had the best pineapples ever. You know, um, rambutan was like this alien fruit that I never even knew what it was, but it was so delicious. Like, everything was so good. And in the Hills Tribe, uh, the people, we stayed in the villages, in the huts. Uh, they provided food for us. And every meal was super delicious and super disgusting. Like, there was no in between, right? Every dish was either super good or super weird. Um, we, they gave us chicken every meal and beef every meal, but there was no cows in the village. So, um, but dogs kept disappearing. Just, you know, just, that's kind of, you know, that's what you do, right? Um, and then in the Philippines, you know, basically the same thing. We spent, you know, two weeks in the Philippines doing ministry. The only difference between the Philippines and Thailand was that now the people spoke English. So you feel a little bit more connection in that sense. And I remember uh, two memories that really stick out. We, we spent a whole day doing ministry in the hill tribes in the Philippines. On our way back, uh, the jeepney or like a large jeep uh, that we were, uh, you know, using for transportation, it broke down in the middle of nowhere. And we spent about five hours just in that jeepney, just singing songs and, and hanging out. And, you know, we sat on the roof, we watched the sunset. And, and one of the uh, sisters on the team was like, hey, you know what, many years from now, we're going to wish that we can come back to this exact same moment, you know. And, and I was like, oh, that's, that's a deep thing, deep thing to say. And uh, it was just amazing. And then at, towards the end of the trip, uh, we were sent out two by two by our team leader to evangelize to the people in the neighborhood. And I remember just going around thinking like, oh, what's the point of this? Like, no one's going to accept Jesus because, you know, we're walking around telling them about Jesus. And, and sure enough, you know, everyone was rejecting us. People were mocking us. And, but the last person we met up with, uh, this lady, you know, I shared my testimony. Uh, you know, our, our, me and my partner were sharing about Jesus. And, and she was really moved. And, 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 you know, she accepted Christ. She asked us to connect us with the missionary that we were with. You know, we connected her with her. And, and hopefully she's still, you know, thriving and, and, and following the Lord. But I just remember that moment thinking how uh, the fact that God could use, like, you know, my frontal lobe wasn't even fully developed. You know what I mean? Like, I, I was a, a total punk, and yet he was able to use me in an experience where I felt like, wow, this is the greatest thing that I could ever accomplish in my life. And I remember being on the plane ride back home thinking, man, God, like, I, I know I've only lived 19 years, but if this plane crashed right now, I can say that my life is fully fulfilled, right? It, it was one of the greatest joys and the greatest highs of my life. And I remember going back in, and then we had a debriefing retreat, and the leaders and, and uh, the, the, the pastors would talk about something called post-mission syndrome. 
this, this thing where, you know, people come back from these short-term mission trips and, you know, they get so depressed. They feel like there's no meaning or fulfillment in life. Um, you know, they no longer go to church. They stop, you know, participating in the campus ministry. You know, they start doing really bad in school. And I was like, that's never going to happen to me, right? Fast forward to the start of my fall semester, uh, fall quarter, and that's exactly what happened to me. Like, I, I was like, you know, back then we didn't know what mental illness was, but I'm, I'm pretty sure I was depressed, you know, I, I just laid in bed. I just read Dragon Ball comics all day long. Um, the only time I got up was to go eat brunch at the dorm cafeteria, and then I just went back to my room and then just read Dragon Ball comic books. Uh, I would go to sleep at 9.30 p.m., and then my roommates would wake me up at midnight. We'd go to Jack in the Box, and I'd get, you know, like the ultimate Jack in the Box cheeseburger, and then I'd just go back to sleep. Um, I gained 40 pounds in, in 10 weeks, okay? You don't think it can be done. I can show you if you really want. I can, I can show you that. I'm really good at that. But um, so just, it was interesting because right after the highest of highs, I experienced like the pit of despair, uh, an experience in life that I would have never even expected, right? And I think for many of us, we have this expectation in life that it's always kind of a linear trajectory of, of, of upward mobility, right? That we're constantly growing, we're constantly maturing, and that if we follow all the right paths, if we do all the right things, then that we'll slowly just kind of keep leveling up with, with good life after good life, good events after good events. But the reality is, and many of you have experienced this as well, that life is like a roller coaster. It's a series of ups and downs. And both the ups and the downs is an ability in a way where God is able to show us uh, really just what he wants us from our lives, and in the same way, Elijah, what we're going to read here in this passage today, he experiences one of the greatest joys and accomplishments of his life, followed by the pit of despair. So today, what we're going to look at is this, that just kind of look at the closer look of the despair of Elijah, what really caused his suffering and his anguish and what he went through. Then we're going to see how God's voice, how God reveals himself to us in some of the most unlikely of ways. And lastly, we're going to look at the, uh, the continued mission and purpose that God has for Elijah's life. So first of all is really kind of the depths of despair that Elijah was uh, going through. Um, and I'm sure for many of you, you know, ask yourself this. Do you have a moment or moments in your life where you experienced great triumph and victory? Perhaps it was a sporting event or a game or a match. You know, my wife recently ran the marathon, and for her, it was like a great achievement, right? And for many, that is a, a really solid achievement. Perhaps something is something that happened in your academic life, whether you graduated or maybe you, you received a scholarship or maybe you finally got that, you know, a higher degree of, of a PhD or, or whatnot. It can be something as simple as a, a rec league event. Maybe you were part of a softball team that won the city league. Maybe your, your, or your sports achievement highlight is in college in your intramural basketball team. You know, I, I still remember playing intramurals once, and uh, we were down by one, and I was on the free throw line, and I airballed the free throw, so we lost. <laughs> that's, that's the extent of my, uh, my achievements. Maybe it's in our competition, right? But, but try recalling those feelings, that, that feeling you had, the emotions that you felt at the very moment of, of victory and, and achievement and of, of, of something spectacular that you did. How amazing was that feeling, right? You can recall and you can remember those things, and we, we, we search after it, right? Uh, for me, one of the more, more recent feelings of being proud of my achievements came not that long ago. Uh, I've shared this multiple times, but, you know, upon feeling the call to come to the Bay Area in 2015, 
uh, me and my family, we moved up to an area to plant the church. And uh, it really felt like it was kind of a, a road to failure. You know, like in my mind, I was like, I had to, I had to kind of tell myself, oh, I'm just obeying God, but I'm pretty sure that things are not going to work out. Because number one, we're going to an area where it's, uh, you know, highly, uh, um, you know, progressive. It's, it's a very post-Christian area. People are highly educated. Uh, and, and it's very expensive to be here in the Bay Area. I also understood the transient nature of the Bay Area and that even if some people are moving into the area and they're believers, that most likely in, in a couple years that they're probably going to move out, right? And if you have a feeling or desire to plant your roots here, it, it's very expensive. You know, the, the shell shock of seeing the housing prices will deter many people from sticking around. Uh, and, and so we, with that mentality, we came, but, uh, you know, through the power of the Spirit and, and through the momentum of, of people who dedicated their time and energy into the plant as well, uh, we started seeing, uh, you know, success. And towards 2019 and 2020, it was probably at a point where I felt like I was at the pinnacle of, of what we were doing here as, as a church. You know, we had just moved to Gunn High School. We had moved to two services pre- previously before that. Um, you know, on a good Sunday, adult attendance would be around 250 to 275 plus kids, right? And if you include kids, maybe close to 300. There was a lot of momentum. There was excitement. There was a lot of young people. There was, you know, people having kids. And I was like, oh, this is amazing. And then the pandemic hit. Um, and after the pandemic, even when we came back, I was like, oh, it's still okay, right? Because we spent two years of not paying rent, saved all that money. Uh, the people that moved out, they were replaced with new people. It almost seemed like a fresh start. Uh, and, and then, unfortunately, there was a series of events that happened in my life, both in my control and outside of my control, and I, st- I started feeling a, a deep anguish and a, and a deep despair and thinking, like, God, couldn't I have enjoyed just a little bit of this success before all these terrible things are happening in my life, both internally and externally? And I started questioning, and I started wondering that. And it's really, really just not too, you know, distant from what was happening with Elijah. He had just experienced the greatest triumph of his life. He had just defeated 400 prophets of Baal. His faith, his obedience, his sacrifice in putting himself in front of that situation for God, right, for the purpose of making God's name great was absolutely spectacular. Even just reading that story last week, and you know, Pastor Eugene preached on that passage, it's just an amazing reminder of how God can use people like us to do something amazing. And then right after that, what Elijah was assuming, and I'm sure this was going through his mind and his heart, was that that spectacular act would be rewarded with something good. That because of that great display of faith, that now King Ahab and his wife Jezebel would repent. That they would repent of their idolatry and their sin. That they would lead the nation of Israel back to worshiping God. And that Elijah would be venerated as the great prophet of Israel. But instead, the direct opposite occurred. Jezebel, in her anger, vowed to kill Elijah. That she would do everything in her power to destroy him. And that brought Elijah to the pit of despair, to the point where he's hiding out in the wilderness, and he cries out to God, and he says, God, won't you take my life? Won't you take my life? Now, for many of us, perhaps even currently in this situation, maybe you are going through that exact same scenario. 
where you felt like you did everything correctly, that you never even disobeyed the law, maybe you don't even speed. Perhaps you were very obedient and you followed the directions of your parents and, and, and you were faithful in your church attendance and everything was going right in your life and you felt like everything was splendid and then perhaps something happened in your life where you're like, I can't deal with this. It can be the health of our children. It can be the health of our family members. It can be a, a situation that is happening at work. It can be something that's happening in your relationship where you feel that there's utter despair and you are wondering and crying out to God, why, God? Why is this occurring? I'd rather die than experience this. And oftentimes, we get so in, just laser-focused on the external circumstances of our lives that we fail to see exactly why would God put us through these situations. And in Elijah's case, it was really this idea that he wanted to show Elijah that perhaps there was a sin of pride in his heart. And another thing that we really have to consider is this, that in the moments of deep despair where we feel like nothing is going right, we always assume that God is not present. We always assume that God is only present in the extraordinary and the spectacular, but God again shows and reveals and proves to Elijah that even in the midst of his most deepest emotional despair, that he is, he is there with him. Right? An angel touches him, and this, you know, so he's, he's just like, you know, in the wilderness, he's just like, he's so depressed. Angel touches him and says, arise and eat, right? A head of caked bread. Uh, uh, cake baked on hot stones in a jar of water. Now, this meal does not sound delicious at all, right? Like bread and water, like that's gross, right? Like at least bread and milk or something, right? Like why can't he have gotten some like goat's milk or something? But bread and water. But when you are absolutely starving, anything is delicious. And the question is, is who provided this? God did, right? And then again, it says ravens came and brought him food, you know, like, number one, um, ravens are one of the smartest animals, smartest birds. They're, they're one of the few birds that can actually recognize human faces. So if you're mean to ravens, they'll, they'll remember you. If you're nice to them, they're actually, they'll, they'll bring you gifts. I don't know if you guys knew that. Try it, okay? Uh, ravens are absolutely intelligent. And God uses these ravens to bring food to Elijah. And again, why would, how would this occur? besides the fact that God's fingerprints and his presence is still in Elijah's life in the midst of his deepest, darkest moments. And I think that's a truth that we all have to remember. That for many of us, I know that there's some of you that are going through very dark moments, very difficult times, very emotionally draining experiences, and we wonder, God, where are you? Because we always assume that God is only present in the good. But that would mean that he isn't God. For God is omnipresent. That even in our deepest trials and our deepest faults and, and our deepest struggles, God is there with us. Next, what we see is Elijah encountering the still, small voice of the Lord. Now, when we see kind of this back and forth between Elijah and God, and God really shows Elijah that he does not always move in the realm of the extraordinary. Because remember, the previous passage was really God revealing himself in a spectacular fashion, 
to both the prophets of Baal and to Elijah and everyone else that was present. And we always feel that that's the only way that God reveals himself, right? To the, the immaculate conception, the virgin birth, you know, uh, the, the resurrection. We, we, we're all, you know, the, you know Moses, uh, you know, splitting the Red Sea. Like, we always assume that God only, uh, you know, reveals himself in the extraordinary and spectacular. But reality is, is that God also reveals himself in the mundane, in the, in the everyday bits of life. Now, in verse 9, it says that Elijah came to a cave and lodged in it. Some commentators theorize that this is the same crevice or the same cave where Moses hid when God revealed himself and just showed his back. And, and just, you know, understanding the, you know, and then as he reveals himself, he asks this question, Elijah, what are you doing here? Now, we have to kind of really figure out what this question is asking because God isn't saying, like, whoa, he's not like, whoa, what the, I didn't expect you here, Elijah. No, no, he's saying, Elijah, why do you think I have brought you here? Right, because looking back at the passage, we realize that God is the one who, who commanded you know, Elijah to go into the wilderness. He gave him food so that he can journey into the wilderness in 40 days. So the question is, Elijah, not what are you doing here? It's, Elijah, why do you think that I've brought you into the pit of despair for you to sit and reflect upon who you are? Why do you think I did this? And his answer uh, reveals something very important for us. Uh, it reveals that Elijah is a little prideful, a little entitled, thinking that he deserves more than he actually does. He responds, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. Again, God, haven't I been serving you? Right? And for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, and now he's comparing himself to others. I've been jealous for you. I've been serving you. People, they forsake you, not me. And he says, you know, they've thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with a sword, and I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Now, just, just kind of decipher this with me. He's basically saying that he's the only one that is loyal to God. That out of the entire nation of Israel and, and, and the world combined, he's saying, I'm the only one that has been loyal to you. And look what you've done. You are, you know, put a hit out on my life. There are people who are out to kill me. Now, when you read this kind of answer from Elijah, we realize that's, that's it's not true. Number one, he's not the only one left that is loyal to God. Uh, previously in chapter 18, it's described that Obadiah, which, by the way, greatest name in Old Testament, right? Uh, Obadiah, who was a political leader, he had actually risked his life to save 100 prophets of God and hid them in caves and fed them and, and, and made sure that they were safe. So he's not the only one. He's one of 101 who is jealous for the Lord. And not only that, in the end of this passage, God reveals to Elijah that there are 7,000 in Israel who have not yet bended the knee to Baal. There are 7,000 Israelites who have been faithful to the word of God. And yet in Elijah's mind, he thinks he's the only one. How prideful was this man to think that he was the only faithful person left in the nation of Israel? So God is trying to draw this out of his heart. Then what we see is that God reveals himself to Elijah. 
It says that first there was a wind, then there was an earthquake, then there was a fire. And after three, all three events, it says, but God was not present in those things. Now, I think it was Wednesday where it was super windy, right? Were, were you guys around when it was super windy? Like, like trees were falling, branches were falling. There was like pine, there were pine needles all over the streets. And I was like, oh my goodness, pine needles. You know, like, it was, it was, you know, we're, Californians were like so like, we're so weak weather-wise. So I was like, oh, pine needles are all over this road, you know, and then, but that was just a windy day. But this wind is describing like tornado hurricane type winds. It was so devastating. It was so powerful. It was so spectacular. But it says, but God was not present in the wind. Then there was an earthquake. Uh, there was an earthquake in L.A. this week as well, right? Uh, and then people forgot that it's been flooding in California because an earthquake happened. So all, people, all my friends in SoCal talked about was the earthquake, right? Because an earthquake is it's, it's extraordinary. And this is, this is what happened. An earthquake happened. And if you had an earthquake and you're sitting in a cave, how scary is that? And yet it says that God was not present in it. Then there was a fire. Now, one of the normal ways in which God revealed himself to the people of Israel in the Old Testament was through fire. He came down as a fire in Mount Sinai as he revealed to Moses the Ten Commandments. He, he you know, was with the people as a pillar of fire as they traveled through the desert and the wilderness. He revealed himself to Moses as a burning bush in the fire. And you would expect that this spectacular uh, force of fire is where God revealed himself to Elijah, but he does not. It says he was not present in it. Then lastly, it says, the sound of a low whisper. And this is where Elijah realized that God was present. Now, the NRSV, I love the translation of the NRSV. It says, the sound of sheer silence. It is in the sound of sheer silence that God speaks and reveals himself to Elijah. It was in the sound of sheer silence that Elijah recognizes God. He covers his face with a cloak and stands outside the entrance of the cave. And there he is asked the same question by God again. What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, just as we expect that the main pinnacles of our lives is found in spectacular display, displays and actions, we assume that God only reveals himself through extraordinary means. So when we are in the pit of our despair... What we pay attention to most often are the loud noises that surround us. And we expect that God would be able to reveal himself also in a loud and extraordinary way to make things right in our lives. But oftentimes that does not occur. God does not always operate in the realm of the spectacular. But the majority of the time, his operations are in the small and the mundane, in the sound of sheer silence. And it was once Elijah was able to quiet his heart, to take his eyes off the distractions of these crazy tornado, hurricane winds, and earthquakes and fire, that he was able to recognize the presence of God in his, in his midst. And I think oftentimes, we get so distracted by the loud noises that surround us. We get so distracted by the things that just pull away at our attention and our gaze, that we don't have the time to sit and be still and know that he is God, to have the ears in our hearts to hear that still, small voice that might be asking us, what are you doing here? Why do you think I have brought you here into the very pit of despair? 
for Elijah, he was unwilling to surrender his life to a God that is sovereign, to a God that proved not that long ago that he can accomplish anything, that he is truly the God of the universe. Like Elijah, he witnessed this with his very own eyes, and yet the moment that his life was in danger, he fell apart. He felt like he couldn't trust God. He felt like he couldn't do anything because Jezebel was after his life. He was unwilling to surrender to a God in which he had already seen was the most powerful being in the universe. And all around him, the only thing that he could focus on were the loud distractions in his life. But isn't that like us? We witness God's extraordinary power in both spectacular and mundane ways, but the very moment, the very moment we feel like something is not going right in our lives, we are unable to surrender to that power. We are unable to trust in the sovereignty of God in our lives. There are many distractions that our lives have to offer and the loud noises that seem to require our immediate attention. Work, there might be things that are going on, family, relationships, and we think that focusing on those loud noises will, will ultimately point us to God, and sometimes it does, but oftentimes it puts us in this perpetual loop of putting out fire after fire after fire and not really feeling the presence of God in our lives. Sometimes what God calls us to is to sit still from those distractions and to listen to that still, small voice where God is reaching out to us and asking us, to no longer trust in our own ability or our own desire and our own pride to achieve something spectacular, but to trust in the presence and power of God. Last point. One thing that we see is that even in the midst of Elijah's pride, God still has a continued purpose for his life. Okay. Um, you would think that... After Elijah hears the still small whisper of God's voice, that there would be an aha moment for him, right? That he would wake up and be like, oh my goodness, I am so dumb. I realize that I've placed so much emphasis on myself and not really thought about just like, you know, your sovereignty and your providence and, and the fact that, you know, that you would still, you know, offer me, uh, you know, a task to, to accomplish for your will. Like, you would think that, but that's not the case. The second time God asked Elijah, Elijah, what are you doing here? Elijah's answer is identical to the answer that he gave previously. He says, I, I alone am the only one jealous for the Lord. I am the only one that remains, right? He, he hasn't really changed yet. But God in his grace gives him three tasks. God, by his graciousness, still says, I still have a purpose for you in, in your life. And he gives him three tasks. He says, I want you to anoint Hazel to be king over Syria. I want you to anoint Jehu to be king over Israel. And then I want you to anoint Elisha as your successor as a prophet. 
right? If you look at that, kind of those three commandments, uh, you see he's saying, hey, I want you to have like an international, uh, you know, be an international affair dude and, and, and put this king as the king of Syria. I want you to think about nationally the people of Israel, and I want you to replace Ahab with, Jeze- uh, with uh, Jehu. And then I want you to think spiritually, because you're not going to always be around. You have to mentor and, and have provide the next prophet for the people of, of Israel, right? Now, these are important tasks, but compared to what he did against the prophets of Baal, this is kind of boring, right? Like, how exciting was it where he was just like mocking, you know, mocking the prophets of Baal, like, hey, I think Baal's in the bathroom, like, I don't think he can hear you, you know, like, he was mocking him, he was having fun, you know, it was like, it was like a, you know, like an and one mixtape of like a basketball player smiling and just like crossing people over and like dunking on people, right? And now what he's asking is like, no, I want you to go back and, and do the mundane tasks of actually being a spiritual leader to the people of Israel. And here are the tasks that I have for you. Elijah, one thing about him is that even though he was unable to recognize his sin at that very moment, he still takes it upon himself to obey the calling of God that he had for him. So he goes... And, and later on in the chapter, what we'll read is that he actually follows what God has called for him to do. And again, this is the antithesis of what we read in the previous passage last week. Here's a man who was willing to do spectacular things for God and wants all the credit and wants all the, and wants all the pomp and circumstance of saying, this is the prophet of God who has done great things. And then now, here's God calling him to do mundane, everyday, ordinary tasks as the prophet of Israel? And is he willing to follow along and be obedient in the, in the daily tasks that he has been called to do? And Elijah does. Even though he is a sinner, even though he is someone who is still not aware of the sin of his pride, he's able to obey God. And the question is how and why? See, throughout the story of the book of, of, of Elijah, there's a lot of foreshadowing and a lot of kind of preview of, of what to expect in our ultimate Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus also spent 40 days in the wilderness. Unlike Elijah, though, Jesus knew the reason why. He was preparing for a ministry to ultimately be the Savior of the entire world. Elijah was in the wilderness against his will. Jesus goes there based on his own will. Elijah was a person who was filled with pride. He wanted all the credit. Jesus is a savior who says, not my will, but may your will be done. God had to provide food for Elijah with bread and water. Jesus claims that he is the bread of life. The water that will continually flow for people like you and me. What we see in the failures of Elijah, we see being reversed in Jesus. And only because of what Jesus has done can we continue to strive to live a life of obedience in the very mundane things that ultimately reveal our surrender and our heart and our connection to a God that is good to us. Let's pray.